Hi, I'm your host, Kimberly Thomas-Tigg, and you're listening to Signalize, a Dazzle for Rare podcast. Whether you're a patient, advocate, caregiver, or a clinician, Signalize is your source for good news, personal stories, events, and the things that Rare and Associated Communities care about. Follow Signalize and Dazzle for Rare at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four, R-A-R-E, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll post episode links, updates, and more. We're with Sean Gordon today, the founder of Rare Funding Team, and we're here to have a little bit of a chat, but I don't want to talk too long. I want to get straight into who you are and a bit about your condition, and we'll go from there. So my name is Sean Gordon. I am speaking to you today from Israel. We live in Israel for the last 30 years, originally from Los Angeles. My wife is from the East Coast of the United States, not from Los Angeles, and we moved to Israel in 1992. So since 1992... I've been in the technology industry. We'll talk about that a bit later. I'm a father of seven children. We're, we're parents of seven children. We have a bunch of grandchildren. So today is one that we're going to talk about, is, as Kimberly has mentioned to you, is uh, the condition, my medical condition, my rare disease that I have. Uh, we're going to talk about my professional background, and, and then lastly, what we're doing today in, in, in helping rare disease patients. So... The condition I have is a, a, a very rare, a very rare condition. It's called APBD, adult polyglucosan body disease. APBD, APBD is a, a one of the a number of, of glucose body diseases where essentially it's about the poor metabolism of glucose. So our particular disease, we don't convert glucose into glycogen. Now, if you remember your high school high school uh, biology, glycogen, glycogen is the sort of backup energy source. Glucose is your first line of energy source. So you know you, you need that's what your basically body burns to 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 create energy. Glycogen is that is that is sort of in reserve energy source that your body then draws on when the glucose is gone. We don't actually convert the glucose into glycogen. So for us, we don't really have those reserves, and so therefore. And it's a number of different problems as we get older. And we'll talk about that in a second. Problem with the problem with our disease is not the conversion, per se, the conversion of, gly- of glucose glycogen. It's the production of that in the, in the, in the word adult polyglucosan body disease. But the polyglucosan is the problem. Polyglucosan is a, is a substance that is sort of toxic to nerves. So what happens is when in your, as you get older, nobody quite knows why, as, you, we, as we get older, the polyglucosan builds up into our brain and it impedes the signals from the brain to, the, to our, to our prefer, peripheral nervous system. What that means is that we don't, many of us experience problems in walking, problems of, of our hands don't work well. Some sadly people have d- dementia and, and almost all of us have a problem with incontinence because the brain and the, and the, again, the nervous system, and the, the purple nerves don't talk to each other well. So the polyglucosan is stopping that. And so it's, it's called adult polyglucosan, adult, because many of us get, get the occurrence, get the, get the, 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 uh, the effect of the disease only as we get older. Despite the fact that all of us, it's a genetic disease, so when we're born, we have it, but we don't often feel the effect until we get older. Personally, I was very, very, uh, very normal for since I got the effects of it at age 50. That's rather very common. Again, the scientists don't really understand why it happens at 50, because in principle, we had it our whole lives. I mean, for example, 
despite the fact that I'm in a wheelchair right now, I was I used to run uh, quite a lot actually. So so that so quite nobody quite understands why we have this disease only as adults uh, because of that disease. Sadly, many of my my colleagues, my co my co patients also are in the same situation. Unfortunately, uh, APD is like many many. Uh, rare diseases, and the, and the process of diagnosis is quite long. My situation is probably, again, very common, like mess rare diseases. It took four to five years for for the disease to be positively identified, and that was only only by genetic testing. Another thing that we sadly share with many rare diseases is that there's very there's no there's no per se uh, cure. We can we can cure the uh, the symptoms or not cure this we can uh, sort of ameliorate some of the symptoms. But we can't really cure the disease. One of the problems that people with heart disease have is that they have spasticity in their legs. Spasticity being the being the tightening the tightening of the muscles. Many of us have to take a, a medicine by the name of baclosol, which the baclosol then reduces the spasticity. So again, the, the, our disease is like many, many, many rare diseases where, we, where there's no treatment, slow, and, and there's a slow, a slow uh, diagnosis period. So again, I, we're very, very, very common in that in that in that regard. Uh, at this current date, there is research being done, and there's even been proposed uh, cures. But at this point, there have been no cures, and there's a sort of a semi trial happening right now, but it's not. It's sort of again. I don't know. I don't know what the uh, the current the current status is. It's that condition that I have is t- sort of taking me sort of degraded my my ability to move because now I'm in a wheelchair. I first started with a cane, crutches, and now I'm in a wheelchair. Um, hope it's not going any further than that. But because of, because of that kind of reduced mo- mobility, I was able. I, was, I had to sort of resign from my work, I, and because. Because there's an inability to effectively move my job, uh, my job from for like many many years, probably for the ninety two ninety three, was in high tech, and and, and I was in my position was in sales and marketing. So my responsibility was traveling around the world, talking to customers and and servicing customers. It's very difficult to do that in a wheelchair. Uh, you can do it on the phone. But just you can do some things on the phone, but some of it has to be done in person. So, because of the degradation in my in my mobility, I was I, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm in a wheelchair right now. So, I had to, I had to leave, leave my job. So, you covered um, a little bit about it being a genetic diagnosis, and a little bit about how long it took to get to that diagnosis. And I think people would be interested to hear sort of. A, just a, a, a little bit about what your diagnostic process was, especially being in Israel, because, you know, you grew up in California, I grew up in Arizona, so we kind of were used to a, to that system. So how did you find the getting to the genetic diagnosis where you are now in Israel? My diagnostic journey really began as I was running, and I started feeling pain in my, in my legs, and I went to a, uh, an orthopedic doctor, and the orthopedic doctor started doing, move my legs around. He sort of was moving all, moving all over the place and said, Sean, there's nothing wrong with your legs or your knees or your muscles or your, your tendons or anything. I said, so I said, he said, maybe you should go to a, a PT, a physical therapist, and maybe a physical therapist can understand how to make your knee feel better. And then I went to a doctor. The doctor says, oh, you have runner's knee. Now, 
from what I learned, that means nothing. Just what they don't, they don't know what it is. They can just call it runner's knee. So I went to a, a PT and the PT, uh, started moving it around. He says, there's, she said, there's nothing wrong with your leg, but she says, and this is, she was the smartest one of them all. And she said, Oh, maybe you have a neurological problem. Okay. Well, I never thought of that before. And she said, well, go to a neurologist. So I went to a neurologist. Uh, and in Israel, we have a, it's more like an HMO system, hate, mal, hate health maintenance organization, kind of like in England, the, the National Health, the, 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 what's the, the, uh, the NHS. It's probably, probably not, it's very similar. So we have a, cause we have a semi-socialized system of medicine here. So I went to a, a doctor's, the first doctor that came up on the, on the, uh, on the, the list of doctors that the, 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 uh, the government paid for. So I showed up to the doctor, he, he was really, he was really awful. And I said, I forget that. I'm not going to go. I'm just not going to go to another neurologist. Okay. And so then I sort of let it, sort of let it sort of hang out for a while. And then it was getting a little bit worse. So then I went to another neurologist. So this neurologist was a little bit smarter. So she said, oh, well, you have HSP, hereditary spastic paraparesis. Just like runner's knee is sort of the grab bag junk uh, diagnosis. They don't know what's wrong with you. So is HSP is the, is the junk, is the junk, uh, uh, diagnosis, they don't know what's wrong with your legs or your movement. So anyway, so I said, I, I lived with that for a while. And she gave me some, 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 some pills, the Baclosol pills in order to stem the uh, spasticity of my legs, which did, of course, it helped. And, but did obviously, it hadn't, it had no, uh, impact at all on, on, I had no idea what I had. And I was actually really scared because HSP is also some rather ugly uh, outcomes as you get older. Any case, so I was going on. I was going on that for a while, and then I told my my family doctor. He said to him, "I said, you know, I didn't really don't like this neurologist. She doesn't really do it for me. I don't think I'm getting the right dosages of the medicine." So he said, "I'll tell you what. Why don't you go talk to this other neurologist I know?" So I go to her office. And, and she, she said, she explained what's wrong with it. She said, Oh, it was so great to see you. I love this. It's really interesting. I mostly see just kids with, uh, with ADHD and give them Ritalin. You're actually a really interesting story. So like, you, you never want to have, you never want to be interesting to a doctor. So anyway, so I was, so I was interesting. So she, she started giving me a whole, a number of tests. So in Israel, we don't have tons and tons of, uh, medical practitioners. So it took me a long time to get these various tests. So it took me about, oh, it must have taken me about nine months to get through all the tests. She should have taken a lot of different tests. So it ended up the last test was was to sort of was sort to to verify her. She thought I had multiple sclerosis (MS). So she then, and then based upon the test I took, the electrical signals from my brain to my legs were not were not uh, whatever up to snuff. So I guess after going through all of that. I spent a couple of days in the hospital, and they did a number of tests. They had a suspicion that I had this disease. The reason they had suspicions was because um, I'm Jewish, and this disease is like a, Jew, a disease for for Jews, for for Jews of European extraction. So it's not irrational that I would have this. They did a test with a blood sample to verify or to test how I metabolized glucose, which is the signpost of this disease. So they saw that I was, I was metabolizing glucose at a very low level, which again, made them sort of, made them think about, well, maybe this guy has ABBD. The doctor then said they had to give me a genetic test. The genetic test that verified that I, they know that the gene, the, the offending gene of ABBD, 
they did the blood test and I had, I had, uh, had the blood, I had the, they did a genetic test and in fact they have APBD. You mentioned, uh, in regards to the genetic testing that they knew the candidate gene for AP, APBD. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, so they knew the candidate gene and this was how many years ago? This was more than 10 years ago. About five years five ago. Five years ago. Okay. Well, that's really interesting that they knew the candidate gene. What's the prevalence, you know, approximately for the community, because it's really interesting to have that target, you know, that gene targeted, especially when it's a lower prevalence condition. Prevalence is, is, is extraordinarily low. You know, all over the world, there's probably 200 people with it. Now, that's a Jewish population of probably, you know, 15 million. So the prevalence is rather low. Well, let's call it, it's not true. It's about 8 million, because 8 million are, are Jews from of a European extraction. So it's about half the Jewish population, I mean, roughly. So it's a very low prevalence. It turns out that the doctor at the hospital that I was visiting near my house was actually the doctor who actually found the gene. So that was actually good luck. Uh, as I said before, I originally came from Los Angeles. Had I lived in Los Angeles, and obviously I'd have the same, the, the, the drug, the disease would affect me probably the same way, they probably would be clueless. They probably rarely ever seen a patient with this weird, with this weird uh, etiology. So I was quite lucky, I mean, lucky if I could put that in inverted quotes, lucky that he was here in Jerusalem because I was able to get a positive diagnosis. Now, as I said before, it's, it's great. I have a label on it. I know what it is. I guess there is some advantage in knowing. But on the other hand, there's really nothing to do about it because there is no cure. Now, having said that again, perhaps if they're working on it, they do be able to find a cure, then I would be, it's good that I'm, that I'm knowledgeable that, my, that I know my disease label. One thing I'm curious about, and this just occurred to me while I was listening to you, is, uh, you know, in different rare disease communities, like the majority of us don't have a cure, let alone any treatments. The vast majority of us don't have a treatment. And also when you've got things that affect multiple systems of the body, it's difficult to, to have treatments because everybody's really individual. Um, but some in some communities, you'll hear people say that they want a genetic cure or like a targeted treatment to completely obliterate the effects of genetic conditions. And some people are very against that and feel like their genetic condition really um, is part of their identity as a person. Like, where do you sit on that conversation? Do you feel like it would be great to have a genetic cure or would you be happier with a treatment? What, what are your feelings on that one? I would be much happier with a non-genetic treatment, only that it's a bit of a Pandora's box. I mean, they, they too try to do artificial intelligence sort of um, analysis to see if they can predict how the how that that genetic test will affect other systems in your body. That's clear. However, having said that, Kimberly, it's so complex. I'm not sure we even understand how it all works. You know, once you sort of put this 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 modified gene in your body, who the hell knows how, what effect that's going to have on other systems? But then again, so if, again, the people who have this disease are. I'm in my 60s now. I mean, I mean, okay, I may not be able to have more children. It's not likely that that it's going to create a, 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 neg a, a, a negative externality that is going to ruin my life. I'm scared when I hear about genetic cures for young people. It, to me, it's very scary. For me, I'm already old enough that I don't think it matters much. But for a younger person who just, you know, they'll have their life in front of them, who knows what that, 
with that with that all mean. I mean, I know there was a recent. I read recently a test, a uh, a a, a, GIS, a CRISPR test where the where the patient died. Obviously, very sad, but presumably they were in, were not in great shape to begin with. But having said that. Okay, they died now, but who knows in six months, a year, how that's affecting their bodies. Even though it has great promise, Kimberly, it's still very scary. I'm sort of saying nothing, but I'm I'm just scared about it. No, I agree with you on that one. And I think it's going to be an interesting debate to follow in all of our communities because all of our conditions are very different. And well, the majority of them are. Some of them are quite similar, actually, but people will be affected in different ways. And and I agree that we don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be. And so the Pandora's box statement makes perfect sense because you don't know until you open it, but you can't put it back in. So you can't just say, well, we've discovered this, but now we're going to put the lid back on it because we know human beings. Once we discover something that changes history, like we're not too keen to just say it's better, we don't play with that. So it is. it will be interesting to see how the debate goes on. But when you mentioned the, what was, it wasn't baclofen. The baclofen. Yeah. In Israel, it's, it's marked as baclofen. It's just, right, you're right, it is baclofen. Yeah, yeah that is I, um, typically given to people with MS. There was a point where my doctor, my GP in America thought that I had MS and I was on baclofen um, for not, maybe not muscle spasticity, but like um, la- lack of control of muscles at different times. And so mm-hmm. having... Um, Difficulty controlling body parts, <laughs> but that's a whole other thing. But yeah, I took baclofen for a short time. And so I was interested sort of in that side note about MS and how MS is oftentimes sort of in the diagnostic, you know, your the logic tree or the differential, like, okay, this could be MS, this could be. So it's interesting how many people probably also get that diagnosis of, or it could be MS. So they send you to an MS specialist and then they go, oh, you don't have it. It's it's just anecdotally interesting, but going back to the technology bit, back to the community bit in terms of rare disease communities and how many of us there are, one thing that we're both keen on talking about is how social media is interplaying with rare disease groups, how they interact, how they network, how they work together, all these different components. And there's been a lot of changes in social media lately. So we've had lots going on with Facebook in terms of data privacy. We've had the transition from Twitter being run by a board to now being run by one guy who trusts his own counsel. God bless him. (laughs) You know, like I always say, if only a fool trusts their own counsel. But uh, so he's a one man band now at Twitter. But what are your thoughts on where we're going on social media and where we will actually be congregating sort of in the near future, if maybe not sooner? After I after I sort of went on uh, went on uh, retired my career in in uh, marketing and sales, I then but it, I was looking for something. What can I do to help the rare disease community? Given my I'm not a doctor, so I can't really help anybody. I'm not, I don't know biology, but I other than high school biology. But uh, so I do know I was involved in marketing for for decades. So I thought to myself, what can I do? So I created, a, as, as you mentioned, Rare Funding Team. The goal of Rare Funding Team was to help rare disease patient organizations uh, locate free uh, marketing resources. And so that was, that's the, was the mission statement of Rare Funding Team. Part of that was obviously was helping them interact and leverage social media. So in terms of community building, 
Facebook and uh, LinkedIn were sort of the main tools. So it helped help help draft different statements and to help them web- build websites, logos, translations. Those were some of the missions of the Finding team. There's two elements to what you said. Number one is Facebook and uh, Twitter, and some of the other ones are have all have privacy concerns. And this clearly is very uh, very key for rare, me, for rare disease patient organizations. So what I did was I thought to myself, how can I take and make more relevant and make more relevant this the the social media experience where where disease patient organizations. So I then teamed up with a fellow and who had a a uh, a metaverse and what we we created we called the rareverse. The rareverse is the sort of the joining technologically joining of the metaverse which is a very vague statement, but living a, a digital life, uh, either with uh, these mo- these goggles or not, these, these virtual reality goggles or not, how to take that metaverse experience, which again is a purely digital experience, and apply it to the needs and the concerns of rare disease patients. So what we did was we have a, a, a platform where a person like myself in a wheelchair can walk around, jump, walk upstairs, have a physical persona in a, in, a, in a body that doesn't work doesn't work physically, and again, I'm just trying to. Uh, if anybody saw the movie Avatar, I guess pretty much about everybody has the movie Avatar. The protagonist is in a wheelchair in the physical physical world, but once he's in the sort of his digital life, he's freed from his wheelchair. He can run, he can fly, he can do all kinds of interesting, cool things. So that's just, that's the sort of same idea in our metaverse. Where a person is in a wheelchair or even bedridden, as long as they're jo- they're jacked into our rare verse, they can move around freely, communicate with friends, jump up and down, sit down, do all kinds of fun things. It's like the next phase of social media. People interact with each other in a more like lifelike, three dimensional way. So that's why we try to f- we worked on we're working on the rare verse, which is again the joining of the, the metaverse with the rare disease community to sort of go on the next evolution of social media. That sounds really interesting. And you you recently wrote about that for Rare Revolution magazine. Definitely, we'll drop a link to that so folks that are listening can check out the article that you wrote. But it's an interesting concept because talking to a lot of rare disease groups, I hear people have various concerns about the current social media platforms and where things are currently. And another thing that I also hear is that a lot of these groups use platforms like Facebook as sort of like an archival system, really, because within their group, they might have like a file section uh, where they may have uh, relevant medical studies. They may have other pieces in their group that are really like sort of like informational like archives for them. So one of the things that I think would be useful, certainly in the rare verse, is to have that sort of access to additional information that people can not only interact, you know, as they might do in the physical world, but also, you know, sort of a a resource area. So is that something that you would foresee, you know, in iterations of Rareverse in the near future? Or how would you see people using Rareverse, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. The Rareverse is architected at, at a few different levels. First of all, is the sort of the avatar system whereby this, the, your avatar can move around in this in this in this metaverse room, like one might move around into a physical room, can sit down, can walk around, go upstairs to look at your your, your friend or 
a colleague in the, in the metaverse, just like you might do it in a the physical reality. So that's that's one level, like the physicality of it. The next the next issue is like you're saying is the archival or file management system. The file management system we have a, in, in our in our particular system we have books on a shelf, and every book on the shelf can be is essentially a URL to a document that's, that can be just re, retrieved. Either URL that's on the open internet, or it could be a, a URL like a, a Google app, like, sorry, a Google document, or a Google or a, a shared document, or, or it could even be from a uh, Dropbox. I mean, that currently exists. We need to sort of execute. I think we need to move to the next level of execution, but that sort of exists. So, the, so you have number one, you have the number one, you have the physicality part of it. Number two, you have the uh, the file retrieval system. Then the third, the third level, if you could create a sort of a hangout place for rare disease patient organizations, we then we're already talking to a couple of well, very very significantly one uh, that is that offers a higher level of data protection than blockchain. And that's a whole other conversation, Kimberly. I'll leave that alone. But sorry, to, to bring in to bring in resources, services, resources to rare disease patients in the in the rareverse that they can then use for their own their own for their own groups. So that's and then and then lastly four, I would call a structure that would that appeals to the needs of a rare disease patient organization. And if you look at them, they have one-on-one conversations like we're having, group conversations, let's say, talking about things of, of general interest. Then they might have training sessions where you have one to many. You'll have one, and that'd be like, and we'd have here, we'd have a, uh, we'd have like a, uh, a stage. And then a stage of people sitting in the in the, in the pews, as it were, and, they, and so we would talk to them, delivering information about a training or some or or something about the disease. So those are the different levels of one on one, like you and I are speaking, like uh, then a, maybe a, a matrix of five or six people or ten people speaking to each other, and then a one to many, like a training. Having more fun, we can have a uh, we can have a, uh, a concert, either a musical concert or a movie. All these things can be done. That sounds really appealing. The the movie comment. Uh, I was just the, I was listening to you and also thinking of the next thing I was going to ask you, and then like that completely sidelined my brain, and I was like, ooh, that would be really interesting to, uh, you know, have that kind of a group interaction, like watching a film or having a concert. A concert would be really exciting. I haven't been to a concert in a while. That would be really cool. Actually, I'm I'm looking forward to that idea. So in terms of you know, the future of the rare verse, people listening, if they're interested in this concept, should they reach out to you? Um, if they're interested in learning more about it, if they're interested in maybe providing their feedback, or if they feel like this sounds like it could be a, a positive use case for them, what's your appetite for that type of feedback? I appreciate that, Kimberly. Our website, to contact me, there's a section if you can send me an email. And I'd be love to talk to you about what your needs are because again, we are in the process of architecting this. So we're really looking for your your needs. You know, I'll be happy to tell you what we're doing, but you obviously know better your life than we do. Obviously, if you can help us, it'd be fantastic. But if you don't mind, Kimberly, put that, you know, tag that onto the uh, onto the podcast here, and then people can be in touch with me. That sounds good. I'm I'm looking forward to sort of what the options in the future holds for rare disease groups because Facebook for over ten years now has been a really central spot for a lot of groups, but it's it's quickly becoming less and less friendly. I think to the the ways that groups work and the ways that people exchange information and the discourse that happens around health conditions and I think the pandemic really changed our our discourse a little bit on health conditions because it really brought out 
the most polarizing opinions and like these, you know, people really clashing on stuff that had already sort of been what we accepted about healthcare. And so it's really kind of changing how people are talking about things. So it'll be it'll be really interesting to see what the use cases are and how groups might be able to utilize different social media platforms in the future. I will absolutely drop the website and the links to the article. But before we uh, conclude, do you have anything that you'd like to share? Anybody you'd like to give a shout out to? Anything you're grateful for today? The floor is yours. Well, I'm grateful to you, Kimberly, for offering me the time to to speak about uh, my my life and the condition and and sort of our our, pl- our views and plans going forward. So thank you very much, Kimberly. I would also like to thank uh, my friends at Rare Revolution uh, Easing. Uh, they've been, I mean, they've been, we've been t- I've been in contact with the uh, with the, the sisters Rebecca and Nicola for many many years now. And they've been a source of inspiration, and I can always add, well now they're very they're very extremely busy because they're so successful, but they've always been available to sort of bang ideas off, and so I I very much uh, I very much respect and, and cherish that relationship. And number three, our uh, the new organization that I was fortunate to to be a co-founder of, World Rare Advocates. A partnership. We were at the, the most recent Biotech X uh, conference representing the patient track, which was again a first time for them. And that was a, a big shout out to Don Ireland, who uh, really spearheaded that. So those are the people I'd be very, I'm very grateful for. And obviously, I'm grateful for for God and for my family for uh, for you know helping me get where I am today. So that's that would be my my shout outs. I love that, and I I. You know, our families are really the cornerstone and they're really the foundation that keep us, a lot of us going. And so for those of us who have a supportive and loving family, like that's, there, you can't buy that. There, there's nothing in the world like that. So I would share that sense of gratitude. I'm very grateful for my spouse for, for putting up with me. <laughs> For the last decade, and uh, he thought he was getting a younger model, but we joke all the time that he's not. I'm physically yeah, older. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's older in terms of age. I'm older in terms of body, it seems like. my The whole inside of my body is just silly. But I'm very grateful for my spouse. So I love leaving on a, on a note of gratitude and just being grateful for, for the people around us. Because no, no person is an island. We cannot do this alone. We really need each other. And I think that's a great place to stop for today. So, Sean, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and to share a bit of yourself with us. And uh, hopefully you'd be happy to come back and maybe expand on some of these concepts, especially the Rareverse, in a future episode. What do you think about that? Anytime, Kimberly, to talk to you. It's my honor. And your audience. And your audience. (laughs) Thank you so much. That wraps up today's episode of Signalize a Dazzle for our podcast. As I said, I'll keep all the relevant information in the description and the show notes. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Signalize, a Dazzle Ferrer podcast. To stay up to date on the podcast and Dazzle Ferrer, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at D-A-Z-Z-L-E, the number four, rare, R-A-R-E. And finally, if you liked this episode, share it with a friend and tag us on social media platforms.